questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Where is everyone? The idea that we are alone in the universe is not supported by recent scientific advances. As a people, we possess the need to explore and to discover whether or not other civilizations exist out there. There is a community of like-minded individuals who possess Renaissance modes of thought that may in fact discover the answers we have been looking for. Tonight we'll discuss the methods of measuring civilization, why it is important, and what we can expect to find as we expand the sphere of human influence. We'll take a journey through the current techniques of detecting and classifying non-terrestrial civilization. Does our present search methodology conform with what we expect rational civilizations to undertake? Are there other interpretations hidden that could better explain our celestial community? Greetings from your host, Mel Fabregas. And if you're new to the Veritas family, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, just click on the subscribe button. And don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and much more. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And to tell us more, tonight's special guest is Adrian D'Amico, a corporate lawyer from the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. He holds a dual JD and MBA in corporate and transactional law, as well as strategy and information systems management. He studied political science at Emory University in Atlanta. Since childhood, Adrian has been fascinated by our place in the universe and what the viscera phenomena means contextually for the human condition. He is the founder of the Suspect Sky YouTube channel, which presents primary evidence involving conspiracy, occulted history, and the existence of a cover world around us. He has a new book coming out titled The Type 5, Type as in Type of Civilization, and 5 as in the Roman numeral 5. He joins us directly from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hello, Adrian, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hey, I'm great. Uh, thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Really appreciate the invitation. It's, it's terrific to be here. Uh, in addition to the YouTube channel, um, we are building uh, a, a, a website. Uh, we are building um, essentially a replacement for the MUFON database uh, related to UFO sightings. And uh, I'm also a frequent contributor over at the Suspicious, uh, Suspicious Observers Project. Uh, we actually, uh, that's how this relationship uh, came about. Uh, he, he introduced us, uh, and I think that's great. Um, and then uh, I'm also a frequent uh, presenter uh, at the Observing the Frontier Conference, as well as my first uh, time presenting at LeakCon 2019. So uh, if anybody's interested in uh, meeting in person to view some of the things we're working on, uh, that'd be great to see you. Uh, but thanks again, Mel. Really appreciate the invite. My pleasure. And by the way, I almost asked you if that V was an actually it was actually a Roman numeral five, but for some reason the TV series V came along. I don't know why. But you're talking about the Type Five civilization, right? Uh, that that is correct. Yes. So first of all, I'm new to your work. Very very impressed with what I've seen on your YouTube channel. But just for those who don't know who you are, beyond what I read. Uh, as you mentioned, it was Ben 
Davidson from Suspicious Observers, who told me to make contact with you. How do you two know one another? And tell us about your background beyond what I read. Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so uh, Ben and I uh, actually were um, next door neighbors growing up together. Uh, and when we went off to college and whatnot, uh, we independently started doing things uh, in this research field uh, in YouTube uh, related to, uh, well, at least for me, more uh, UFO, more occulted history stuff, more New World Order stuff, uh, which I actually call the corptocracy. Um, that's a whole other pillar of of work that we work in. And Ben actually went into solar physics, uh, the um, uh, Earth-Sun global circuit connection, uh, that kind of field. Uh, and then we kind of got back together, uh, got back in touch many years later, and we were just both very surprised uh, that we kind of had gone down similar paths. So it's kind of an interesting story when you think about it. And um, we, we share uh, our, our colleagues and friends and things like that um, for our research projects. Uh, I would say that our team uh, investigates a, a number of, of very critical areas that may be a little bit different than uh, the Susp uh, Susp uh, Suspicious Observers team. We investigate uh, not only UFOs uh, and the alien presence among us, uh, which I actually refer to often as the visitor phenomena, and this ties back to the works of uh, Whitley Stryber um, and a few others in the field uh, that are trying to explain the high strangeness of, of the uh, phenomena. But we also dip into things like missing trillions, uh, which is this whole uh, event that occurred about a year ago where the government uh, essentially lost uh, an enormous amount of uh, money, uh, around $21 trillion. Uh, and we also focus into um, health uh, concerns, which we often uh, describe on our channel as a poisoning of the planet. Uh, and this comes in the form of 5G networks. This comes in the form of uh, glyphosate, now dicambria, uh, after the Bayer acquisition of Monsanto. So we cover a lot of uh, a lot of the field, a lot of the target-rich environment. And our video structure on our YouTube, so our YouTube channel is definitely the main point of contact for our team. Uh, actually, I might want to add that we are a team of people. I just happen to be the creator and founder of it. Um, but we are a team of people, including uh, retired CIA and NSA operatives, uh, including myself, uh, who is a lawyer. Um, so I have a different approach to analyzing evidence than I would say uh, the majority of mainstream science. And all the way down, uh, you know, all, all the way to um, your average folks. Uh, we have a small business branch owner uh, who provides uh, their opinions as well. Um, so we're a very diverse team. Uh, and we try to bring um, through a series of what we call discussion videos, uh, which are very similar to like your radio podcasts, um, very similar to that. Uh, we also do what we call compilations of what we find to be the most compelling UFO evidence uh, of the last couple weeks. Uh, and we also have a series of uh, what we call full length documentaries. Um, Probably the, the biggest being uh, our Rise of a New World Order trilogy, uh, which has upward of around 10 million views. Uh, and um, these full-length documentaries are very in-depth uh, and very uh, experiential uh, uh, type of visualization. So you're actually watching these events unfold uh, using primary sourced video content. Uh, we try to take the viewer on a journey through what um, – 
everyone else was reporting on during the events over the last uh, few decades. And we encourage the viewer to reach certain conclusions about how to alternative, uh, alternatively interpret the historical accounts that have been done. It's very interesting how you mentioned that you also discuss health, because when I started this program 10 years ago, I only focus on UFO. That's, that's what fascinated me. But more doors open up ancient history and then alternative health. And people ask me, why did you go with alternative health? Everything is interconnected. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And uh, in addition to alternative health, um, I actually have some personal experiences that made me realize that perhaps I don't want to be a member of the uh, pharmaceutical cartel uh, going forward. And maybe I should think about other ways um, to handle any health issues that come up. Um, we also do a little bit of work uh, in catastrophe cycles, which I, I noticed was a big conversation point in your interview with Ben. Yeah. Uh, and we actually have a copy of the Chan Thomas Adam and Eve book, which we'll be releasing very shortly. And this is going to literally be uh, a, a video recording of the entire book itself, because we felt it's very important to uh, release this type of information to the public. Before we continue and we discuss the book and many other areas, I have to ask you because the very first episode of this year, at the end of that interview, I mentioned one word to people. And this is exploding out there, almost like a Mandela effect. I'm sure you've heard the word Tartaria lately. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we actually did a discussion video on it. Um, and with Mandela effect, uh, we've also done uh, a full-length documentary on Mandela Effect. It's called uh, Mandela, the Inquiry Continues. Uh, and we found some very interesting connections to the directors of CERN, uh, that particle physics lab uh, over in Europe, uh, and with the Mandela Effect. So if you're interested, I would highly suggest checking out that video as well. Well, this is, folks, if you haven't heard about this, I'm sure that you've read, heard me in the past few weeks Mentioning this is something very disruptive to our mainstream understanding of history, the Tartarian Empire. And what you just said about CERN, could it be, and this sounds like science fiction, many people, they haven't heard that the Tartarians were all the way in North America, even in the 1800s. This is not thousands of years ago. This is during the Civil War. Supposedly, they were still here. How come we haven't heard? Could it be? Is there any, any correlation that... Perhaps CERN has opened a parallel world, and this is why all of this is coming out? You know, uh, our approach to these big questions over at our channel and our team is to be very Socratic. Uh, my background in law uh, leaves me uh, or, or provides me the skills to say there could be any number of scenarios that are actually happening. Here they are. Uh, and you, I'm going to leave with uh, the the information now to make up your own mind. Tartaria is interesting and has been getting a lot of attention lately um, for pretty much two reasons in my mind. It, it's either a very, very big Mandela instance. Uh, so Mandela effect is this idea that people don't remember history the way that we're now told it is. We actually refer to Mandela effect on our channel and our, our platform as being uh, mass misrememberings of information. And what is 
very fascinating about the phenomena is that it appears to be binary in nature. So there is 50% of the population that remembers one thing, and then there's 50% of the population that remembers the exact same wrong thing. And that's where we start to get in this weird um, uh, kind of, how could this be possible? Uh, the classic example is the Berenstein bears are actually pronounced the Berenstain bears. And this has pretty much created the entire phenomena online right now. Um, but there are other examples as well, potentially including Tartaria. So Tartaria could be a Mandela effect uh, uh, item, uh, or it could be um, the massive rewriting of history by those in power. Um, so it's not impossible, say, for a fascist, communist, uh, or even, as I refer to many, the majority of the regimes around the world as uh, corptocracy regimes, uh, to actually rewrite history so that people don't remember this stuff. Um, but it, it, Tartaria continues to be a very fascinating topic, I think, going forward. We're, we're still a little new to it. We're still investigating it. But uh, I think this is going to be a very big issue going forward. Define, please, that word you keep using, corptocracy. Uh, oh, absolutely. Um, so this is a this is a term that that we've coined over at our channel. The idea of the corptocracy is the idea that big government and big business actually work hand in hand behind the scenes, um, and that actually when we demand regulation for something such as five G health or uh, where did the missing trillions go, um, when the people demand change or demand accountability. It actually doesn't go anywhere because the real government is this uh, relationship between big government and big business and that they actually do some terrible stuff. Um, they do things, in in my opinion, they do things like 9-11. They do things like the military industrial complex. They do things like deep state surveillance. They do things, gene uh, genetic profiling, uh, as well as, in my opinion, one of the biggest issues that we're dealing with now is the social engineering uh, capability of social media technologies happening now. Um, and uh, this is often an area that we investigate quite frequently. And again, I would just suggest that you watch the Rise of a New World Order trilogy, which kind of introduces everybody to, the, to this concept of the corptocracy, uh, which actually began, the, the, the term actually came to me uh, when reading a Swedish study that essentially 60% of the global economy is owned by 140 transnational corporations. And you, you may think, well, you know, it's impossible for, you know, a, a hundred people, a hundred shadowy figures in a smoky room uh, to actually run the world. Um, well, they, it, it kind of is that now, now uh, based off of this Swedish study. Um, and the, the effects of that, of knowing that fact uh leads you to some very interesting avenues of alternative health, 5G networks, um, uh, glyphosate, uh, and all that stuff. So it, it all kind of stems from the idea that there are a very few number of transnational corporations that have ownership stock, uh, board directorship control over the vast majority of the global economy. You mentioned the $21 trillion, quote unquote, lost recently. But do you remember September the 10th, 20, uh, 2001, the day before the 9-11 false flag, when uh, Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense back then, in front of Congress said that we have lost $2.3 trillion. 
Then 9-11 happened the next day, and nobody ever asked that question again. Where do you think that money is going or went? Yes, absolutely. That, that's a great observation. That is a component of the corptocracy. Uh, it's basically, in my opinion, a big money laundering scheme. Uh, so uh, big business works with big government. They have the tools and the resources and the money to do these types of things. Uh, it's not unheard of. Um, and when, when if anybody listening is asking themselves, how could this be kept secret for so long. You know, the government is big, it's very hard to manage. Well, it's a simple concept called compartmentalization of information. Um, I mentioned earlier that we have a, a, a former uh, intelligence operative uh, who works on our team and, and advises and consults us. Uh, his name is Gary. And uh, this is not difficult to do for them. This is a well-established methodology, a well-established technique. And the fact that our governments have been infiltrated uh, by corporate interests and corporations have been infiltrated by government interests is what we refer to being the corptocracy, is that it's just this relationship between all of these individuals, all of these entities, uh, which leads to, in my opinion, the oppression of the people. Do you think there is a secret space program and perhaps some of this money has been funneled through it? So that's where we kind of go with it. Um, we go with the idea that there is definitely some form of a secret space program. Uh, we know this because DARPA and its related um, Department of Defense entities are always historically 30 years ahead of the publicly disseminated knowledge. So likely uh, there is space-based technologies that we are publicly unaware of. Uh, uh, in addition to that, there is that X2 space plane that's been orbiting over the Earth for years. Um, so if that is the publicly released piece of information, how likely is it that there is a much more substantial presence uh, in space that is being kept covert? Also, that being said, is $21 trillion has to go somewhere. If it goes into the normal global economy, this would cause a spike in inflation that would ruin, yeah, hyperinflation that would ruin the global economy. So the the money, uh, and by money, I actually mean the goods and services that was purchased with that money has to go somewhere. Um, and we speculate on our channel and our team, we speculate that it's either underground or in space because it can't be part of the normal global economy. Which leads me to the next question about the moon landings, since we're coming up to the so-called 50th anniversary of the so-called moon landing. Here we are, we are. I've spoken with Edgar Mitchell, with some others, and Occam's Razor, observation, research, tells me that with what they presented to us, with that technology that they showed us, we did not go. Now, if we have a secret space program, perhaps... Your opinion on this? So I might differ a little bit uh, uh, in opinion on this. So I personally know an astronaut. He's a member of our team. His name's August Dunning. Uh, he's shown me pictures of him in space, uh, and I don't think that they could have been faked. I also personally trust the man. Um, that being said, I think that they did land on the moon, uh, but that they landed in a place and for a reason that was not publicly disseminated. Uh, if you look at where Apollo 11 landed, it was near a place called Mulkey Crater. 
And uh, our team created a video called NASA UFO Footage and Alien Secrets that was actually banned on YouTube permanently but is now available on Vimeo. Uh, And I'm actually working on an edit to it that should enable me to re-upload it onto YouTube. Uh, And what's interesting about uh, the video and about the whole Apollo 11 program uh, was that if you download the black box transcripts, which are publicly uh, publicly available information, and you actually read what the astronauts were saying to one another when they weren't in a public broadcast mode, so they weren't speaking to the people of of our planet, uh, they talk about things such as I see campfires on the moon, I see triangular roads by Mulkey Crater. Um, there are people on the moon. It's very spooky. It's very interesting. So, I think. Uh, that the moon landing happened, but they didn't reveal why they actually went there and what they were actually looking for, uh, which I think was the evidence of ancient alien contact. What is what you are editing out from the video that may have caused uh, YouTube for, for YouTube to remove it? Uh, so that, that's actually not so nefarious. Um, it's actually an interview with Buzz Aldrin uh, where he talks about a UFO he saw from the Apollo 11 uh, module. Uh, and apparently there's some very sticky copyright issue with it. Uh, oh, I see. Yeah. So it's it's not it's not anything too nefarious. It's just a frustrating inconvenience. You're an attorney. Let me ask you a legal question, because I've had the same situation sometimes when I'm posting things from NASA. Oh, copyrighted material by NASA. If we are the taxpayers, we actually funded NASA and their projects. Is are they in the in the legal right to remove any what they deem to be intellectual property? So uh, I just want to say I'm not providing any type of legal advice here. Sure. But uh, but no, um, uh, anything produced by a government agency is in the public domain uh, and may be used by you. Uh, the what happens is. Uh, sites like YouTube or or Facebook or other social media sites, they've created algorithm-based uh, protections for their advertisers. And what happens is you unfortunately get caught up in an appeals process. Uh, but no, it, it's certainly a public domain piece of information. And anything produced by NASA, anything produced by NOAA, uh, any of the weather monitoring uh, services um, is completely public domain and can be used. It's interesting how YouTube has the technology that sometimes on purpose I tested and I say one word, one word, I'm not going to say the word here, but a word on minute 49, for example, and all of a sudden demonetized immediately. What kind of technology do they have that they can detect any word? So that, that, that's a good point. Uh, it's, it, it's a bot uh, that understands the English language and looks for these keywords the, the big issue with this is censorship. Uh, so on our channel, we talk quite a bit about how the social media sites use these bot technologies to silence alternative opinion. And that's where we are really getting into a very troublesome situation. Um, so things like uh, if you mention the word chemtrail, for example, I don't know if you've noticed this on YouTube, uh, an article will will automatically appear in your video description Wiki. that explains the counter mainstream opinion right. of chemtrails. Um, and this happens in everything. Um, so chemtrail is not the only one. It's just a, a, a poignant example. 9-11 is another example. They explain the the mainstream explanation under the video. 
Yes. And, and it's, it's a very, uh, creepy situation happening because there are a lot of questions about nine 11. There have been for decades. Um, there are a lot of questions about the missing trillions. Um, there do exist things called solar radiation management programs that do spray the sky, uh, that, has now been weaponized. Uh, this is a term we use in our channel uh, often. Uh, the word chemtrail and other words, um, such as conspiracy theorists, have been weaponized by uh, elements of the media um, to basically mean it's not true, right? So uh, now the weaponization of these words uh, has now been algorithmically programmed into what essentially is the information sharing resources of the entire world. Um, so it's it's a very spooky um, situation to be in. And I would like to say that, no, it's not too difficult for a couple billionaires to build such a technology and in place those types of restrictions into it uh, to ultimately censor alternative media and alternative opinions. If I remember correctly, before the advent of Facebook, uh, b- I believe it was the one of the the intelligence agencies, perhaps the NSA, they went to Congress asking for authorization so they could actually data mine the information from the citizenry. And Congress said no. Immediately after, why came out? Facebook. And now people voluntarily provide that information. Even a few weeks ago, you saw that 10-year challenge where people are posting pictures from 10 years and now I think that was Facebook basically saying, please provide that so we can, our algorithms can be recalibrated. Uh, absolutely. And then Facebook, as part of the corptocracy, then sells all of your faces to the CIA, to the NSA, to all those other uh, organizations. Um, so you have now voluntarily updated uh, your facial recognition. Uh, well, you've now updated your face so that their facial recognition systems uh, will now have a much more clear uh, ability to find you and track you using all kinds of methods, right? By the way, you're saying corptocracy, like corporate corporatocracy, but corptocracy, is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, so we, we call it the corptocracy. Got it. Um, which, which essentially is uh, a government that has been so highly... Um, dug into a relationship with big business. Uh, and this is not big business's fault either, that they're both at fault for doing this, um, that there really is no viable representative government left anymore. Sure, corporatism, basically Mussolini. I remember well, I studied that and it absolutely it's that combination of, of, of business that is actually, if you look at the Fortune 100 companies now, And who are the lobbyists that we have in our own government? They're the ones who rule. I have no doubt in my mind whether it's Republican or Democrat. Yes, uh, lobbyists are are certainly one manifestation of the corptocracy. Uh, There there is also... um, uh, things like the Panama Papers. I don't know if you're aware sure. of that, but these massive uh, uh, cartel money laundering things that were occurring uh, basically with the consent of their relative uh, governments. Uh, it, it's it's less it's less an issue of government versus companies, which the mainstream media often tries to illustrate that. So it's a battle between government and uh, a battle against business uh, and vice versa. So business is trying to battle the government. No, it's it's actually there are groups of people in both theaters of conflict, I, I would call it, uh, that 
uh, are have secret handshakes, an unholy alliance between them uh, that actually rule the the world around us. Unholy alliance reminds me of the, William Engdahl's work, and when you see these people who claim that they want to reduce the price of drugs for the common man, and all of a sudden behind the scenes they vote against. Every time they vote against that, and the same thing goes with some of the things in California, for example, a very open-minded state. At the same time, they vote against any labeling of GMO. So whatever you see your politicians say, just watch their voting record, and sometimes it's diametrically opposed. I'm glad you brought up um, the GMO uh, thing, because uh, there. Uh, is this uh, what we call on our channel the revolving door, uh, where the FDA, yeah. right, the agency that's supposed to be making sure that the the food that we eat is healthy, uh, there's been a long tradition of former Monsanto CEOs and directors being uh, the director of the FDA. Right. Um, how is that possible, right? How, how does that make sense? Um, and now with the acquisition of Monsanto by Bayer, uh, and the release of this new glyphosate product called Dicambra, uh, I think we're going to see a lot more health issues related to that. Uh, in particular, uh, a piece of news I'd like to share is there was a man uh, who successfully, uh, in a court of law in the U.S., uh, successfully uh, proved the guilt of the chemical Roundup uh, glyphosate uh, sufficiently enough that forced Monsanto to settle the case and gave him something like $75 million. Um, so it, it, it's it's a very tenuous situation going on. And I would just suggest for anybody listening uh, to not entrust your FDA directors or your regulatory agencies to adequately protect you or your children uh, from these threats uh, because it, they're just all one big uh, happy family behind the scenes. I saw that. I followed that case. Uh, we, the order to pay, what, what is it, $289 million? The jury uh, ruled? That, yeah, that, that was the, uh, the, the requested settlement. Uh, it ultimately, I believe, was $75 million. Uh, oh, 78, $78 million. Groundskeeper accepts reduced $78 million award, which is nothing if you, if you ask yourself how much is Monsanto worth? Well, and it's it's also interesting. Um, is there going to now be a series of cases that happen after this? Uh, you know, is, is this the only person that uh, Roundup caused cancer? Uh, I imagine not. I mean, they put Roundup in everything, um, and and glyphosate based chemicals in everything, and uh, I likely could anticipate a, a long series of cases going against Monsanto. However, Monsanto doesn't exist anymore, right? So Bayer quickly bought it up, settled this case, and then now who are you going to sue? So it's uh, kind of fascinating. So even even if there's a precedent set, now that the, the umbrella is under Bayer, it's the jurisdiction is no longer here. Is that what you're saying? Uh it's a little bit more difficult. You would have to assume that uh, Bayer has assumed the liability of Monsanto is what is what you would have to prove. Um, can you do that? Sure, it's been done before. It, it just becomes a little bit more complicated. Well, let's dissect this for a moment because we glyphosate. I mean, if you look at the 1990s, I believe, when the uh, autism spiked. Are you familiar with the work of Dr. Stephanie Seneff? 
I, I am very aware of the of the spike in autism, and they often claim that it's just an expansion of the definition of it. Uh, but we are now hovering around one in something like ten children have autism, and I just don't think that's possible uh, with any type of expansion of the definition of autism. When I asked the so-called experts about this, if the trend continues in less than twenty years, it will be one. In two, children born will be autistic. If that's the case, it means that either you or I will be autistic. And if that's the case, who will be taking care of you or I? That's social collapse. Uh, or it's uh, the nanny medical state, right? So they're going to now harvest your disease through things like pharmaceuticals and hospital care to make money. Uh, is is another potential avenue uh, that could happen. Now, going back to the very first video I watched on your channel, which, by the way, is only one, but it has over three million views, is the one with all these things that we see in the sky. A lot of those things I've seen in other videos, but the ones you have, you put a great compilation there. My question is, with the advent of 4K phones, cameras, and so on, How do we discern what is real from what is not? That's a that's a great question. Uh, the the video that you're talking about is entitled "Alien Contact Above and Below." Yes, um, it is possibly one of the most watched uh, videos on YouTube about the UFO phenomena. Uh, I would also like to quickly add that in an effort to show the footage and educate people. Uh, I try to create a dramatic environment. Uh, so I use things like music and editing and things uh, to show the evidence in a way that keeps the viewer engaged, because I think this is such an important topic. Uh, your, your question about how do you tell what is fake and what is not, uh, we actually have a, an image analysis expert on our team. Uh, his name is Xavier. That's not his real name, but uh, that's his uh, moniker that he goes by. Uh, who actually worked for Kodak uh, and did image analysis for them. And he often recommends uh, that there are a few things that you can do to tell what UFO footage is real and what is not. Um, there is uh, aberrations that will appear between something that was added to a video after the fact. Uh, these can often appear to be uh, lines or um, murky, almost um, fuzziness uh, that can occur around the object that was artificially added versus what would actually appear in a video uh, if it had actually been filmed. Uh, so that is one way to sort of analyze the, the uh, potential for some type of CGI forgery uh, to have been created. Uh, the other thing that I like to look mostly at is emotional reaction from the person filming it, uh, as well as any sort of background-based uh, uh, identifier. So things like trees or houses, those types of, of stuff, to, to create a setting in which this actually took place. Um, because you can do further analysis if you have that sort of background data, those, those background elements Uh, to confirm whether or not it is a fake. Uh, we we dig through hundreds and hundreds of UFO videos sent to us every week, and we try to create a compilation of what we think is the best presentable evidence uh, on a periodic basis of the most recent UFO phenomena filmed, uh, which I actually like to call the visitor phenomena. What is the one case, after 
your years of research where you say this is it, this is the, the most compelling case of all? Do you have one or a few? Uh, so that's a very interesting question. Uh, so I myself have seen uh, UFOs. And that to me is uh, the best case in my mind uh, because I actually experienced it. Uh, I've seen roughly uh, four to five of the of the of the phenomena in my lifetime, uh, mostly uh, as a child, and then uh, as most recent as in college. Uh, and uh, it, it's a phenomenal experience. Uh, it, it's you can't even describe it in words, really. Um, but uh, I can, if you'd like, uh, try to attempt Oh, please to. do. I know the feeling. I had the same situation happen to me. Please go ahead. Sure. So I, I break down the visitor phenomena into two areas. Uh, there is what most people call the abduction phenomena, uh, which has been referred to by Whitley Stryber as not really being an abduction. Uh, it's really more of a strange experience that happens uh, that your mind mentally cannot understand. Um, this experience occurred when I was six years old, and I actually uh, – one of my habits as a child was I would go downstairs on Saturday afternoon and I would watch cartoons. And uh, I remember actually hearing a noise coming from uh, a, a, another room, an office actually, uh, my father's office. And um, when I walked into the office uh, after hearing this noise, um, there was actually what I can only describe as red laser lights dancing across the ceiling. And a voice was emanating from them uh, that was saying, lonely little boy over and over and over. The next thing I remember was my mother grabbing me, picking me up uh, and screaming the words, no such thing as ghosts. Uh, there are no such thing as ghosts. And she was screaming that over and over. Uh, and um, every electrical appliance in the house exploded at the same time. Uh, and this more than anything has motivated me to to investigate this field, uh, to be a, a, a valuable and rational contributor to it, um, because I know in my heart that it is real and thousands of people have experienced uh, similar things. Uh, and it's also not as simple as aliens pull you up into a spaceship uh, and do tests on you, right? It, there's this whole bizarre uh, what's referred to as the high strangeness of the phenomena that is very difficult to make sense of, which is why I call it the visitor phenomena and why I think that people like uh, Keel and Stryber have done a really great job in looking into it very deeply uh, and trying to figure out what is really this experience that a lot of people have. Um, as I got older, I saw uh, a number of UFOs, and actually I have not seen one in quite some time. Uh, they might not be paying attention to me anymore, uh, but the one that sticks out the most was on a boat. Uh, I actually saw a matte black object uh, uh, kind of flying around and, and swirling around in a way that was impossible for uh, a man-made device to do it. Um, but uh, yeah, so th there, there's been a number of experiences that I think have motivated me uh, to investigate this phenomenon. I've always been interested in it since childhood uh, for obvious reasons. But um, uh, I do try to take a very professional stance to it and try to 
select and analyze the best footage to to release on our on our channel, uh, as well as take a very um, logic based uh, deductive approach to the book that I've actually written uh, written recently that will be for sale in March uh, about our current search for alien life and maybe some gaps that might exist there. And we'll discuss the book in a minute. I usually have a copy of a book that I read, but I, it's not out yet. So we'll discuss it from a 10,000 feet overview. But you mentioned the lasers. And recently we received a lot of information here in our wire that there's technology that sends audio via lasers. Apparently, I think Cornell, Cornell was one of the, uh, the, the institutions that came up with it. And they basically... They modulate the amplitude of the laser, and basically they direct it at somebody. And you might think that you're hearing voices. You are. Nobody else around you. So I wonder what happened to you was more or less that. You were getting laser beams in your room that were directed at you. It's it's possible. Um, and the, the technology around the lasers uh, is actually something used by things like this uh, or agencies like the CIA and whatever. And you're, you are correct that you can actually induce uh, modulations in the inner ear of people uh, or on things like windows. Right. Uh, where you can actually create uh, sounds uh, that can then be used to potentially manipulate your target. Um, so that's definitely an existing uh, technology, uh, one that has been explored for probably 50 years by our intelligence uh, services. The the experience, though, that I think myself and other people who have had in the visitor phenomena is um, very surreal, uh, very strange. And uh, I think that there is such a gap between what we could even think about doing technologically as a species to induce such a, an experience uh, is so far away from what the actual experience is. Um, and I think there is a huge technological gap there, uh, which is why I think there is a, a substantial amount of credence for those people that have experienced uh, the visitor phenomena. Do you think our own military uses technology Perhaps that some of the vessels don't even use fossil fuels and they use something else. Of course, we know of nuclear, but some other technology that the population doesn't see and even spaceships. Now, recently, President Trump and Vice President Pence came out with the what's what's the new branch of the military, the new Space Force. Do you think this Space Force has existed for a very long time and they're finally admitting that it exists? Sure. And, and like I mentioned, I think that we are 30 years behind what they actually have. Um, so uh, if, if they publicly announced the commissioning of a Space Force, uh, I think 30 years ago, uh, they actually had one. And what they have today is far more advanced. Um, I think it makes sense rationally and reasonably for governments to create secret space programs. Um and not disseminate uh, the knowledge to the people, whether that's fair or ethical is another question. Now, let's dive into your book. I'm going to do it blindly a little bit from my side, but I remember the words of uh, Dr. Michio Kaku, type one, type two, type zero. How do you measure civilization? Yeah, so the book uh, spends the first uh, few ch uh, pages or chapters, uh, the book tries to clean up kind of 
what I consider to be a mess of online inter, uh, uh, information about what a type one, a type two, et cetera, is. Um, and the way I clean up this mess is I say, hey, there were there was initially this uh, uh, individual called Kardashev. Uh, he was a Russian uh, uh, astrophysicist who came up with the idea of a type one, a type two and a type three civilization that was dependent. Uh, so the classification was dependent on how much energy that civilization could utilize. It could be uh, as much as a planet, as much as a solar system, or as much as a galaxy. And those would correlate to a type one, two, and three civilization. So that was the initial concept that Kardashev introduced, uh, you know, close to like a hundred years ago. His ideas were then adapted by three different people, uh, primarily, um, involving uh, Michio Kaku, like you said, uh, an individual named John Barrow, and an individual named Robert Zubrin. And these people had different or supplemental ways of thinking about how to measure the status of a civilization. And so there's been a lot of confusion around what actually is a type one, what actually is a type two, um, because there's been a lot of kind of sharing and, and other people going off on their own, creating other scales. So in my book, I actually suggest that the best way to go about classifying uh, the levels of civilizations is to actually combine the initial Kardashev scale with Robert Zubrin's scale. And Robert Zubrin dealt with the ability of a civilization to exert its influence across its environment. Uh, and I felt that this was a very important component uh, to combine with Kardashev's energy scale, uh, primarily because his in our history as a, as a people, uh, I think history has been greater defined by the ability of one civilization to exert its influence over the world. Um, our history has been more defined by that than than anything else. Uh, and I thought that that was probably a very important component to include in, in, in the book. Uh, so I actually create a, a new scale, uh, which is a combination of those two scales and adaptation, uh, which leads the reader to have five civilization scales. Uh, the first is the ability to control the energy and exert its influence over the planet. Uh, we are getting very close to this, probably in the next few hundred years. Uh, you would have the ability to manipulate the weather. You would have the ability to mine the oceans. Um, you would have an internet that connects all of your people together uh, and, and allow you to exert uh, uh, your your ability to to harness information across the whole planet. So we're getting close to a type one. Uh, a type two would be uh, the ability to control the energy and exert your influence over the entire solar system. A type three would be analogy across uh, 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 an, an analogy would be across the galaxy. Uh, and then we start to get into something very interesting, which is the type four and the type five. And these types of civilizations are such an evolutionary departure from what we can even envision uh, that we have difficulty understanding them. Uh, the type fours would have essentially access to the available energy resources of a supercluster of galaxies. Multiple galaxies is under the domain of this. And 
in the book, we actually present evidence that there is a phenomenon in uh, astronomy called the Boetti's Void, uh, which is this very odd dark patch in the universe um, that apparently uh, one theory suggests uh, could be the presence of thousands of these things called Dyson structures. Uh, that is actually blocking the sunlight being produced by these uh, stars uh, as a w and being captured for the energy usage of this civilization. But this civilization would be able to present itself uh, in ways almost con uh, considered magical or spiritual or supernatural. And this is where the visitor phenomena gets really interesting because we have – Thousands of disparate cultures across our planet that talk about the arrival of beings from the sky that were essentially magical or supernatural or spiritual. And a type four civilization would be able to present itself in such a way because of its advanced technology and uh, its its uh, available energy resources that it could manipulate space and time in ways that to us, we would have difficulty understanding. And then the type five, I'm not going to mention because I'm going to leave that as a surprise. <laughs> I can, well, what is type five? Is that when we become God? I, so I make a very similar analogy uh, in the book, but uh, I'm going to leave that for anybody who would like to That's read fine. it. Um, it let, let's just say that it is uh, 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 nature itself in a way. I'm just thinking of the comparison. When you see an, an anthill, and they, if they even perceive our presence unless we step on that anthill, if they'll look at us, what will be the comparison between us on a type 1 or type 2 civilization? Could we even comprehend them just like a, an animal, an insect cannot comprehend us or vice versa? Yeah, uh, that's a very good point. And I, I would also like to mention that under my model of uh, the types of civilizations, humanity is around a, a type 0.5 decimal point. Um, so we are almost to a, a type one. We're not, we're not quite there. But you, you are exactly right when you brought up the anthill. Um, so this uh, comes from the Fermi paradox. And uh, Enrico Fermi uh, was, a, was a famous uh, physicist. And he asked the question, everything we know about the universe, and this is actually becoming increasingly true the more we learn about the universe, everything about the universe says that there should be tons of alien civilizations, tons of extraterrestrial life out there because um, it, just the, the conditions for life, and we, we continue to learn this more and more, are actually uh, quite vibrant uh, in, in the universe. And Enrico asked the question, and this forms the basis of his paradox, where is everybody? Why, why haven't we detected anyone? And there were two responses in particular to that question, one called the zoo hypothesis and one called the jungle hypothesis. The zoo hypothesis uh, postulates that life, extraterrestrial life, is out there everywhere – uh, but that we are purposefully being kept in the dark about it. Um, this is actually kind of similar to the idea in Star Trek of the Prime Directive, that you don't want to interfere with uh, a lesser uh, developed species. I argue in my book that I do not think that um, all alien civilizations would have the same moral and ethical code not to, of non-interference. 
so I actually, in my book, argue against the zoo hypothesis. Uh, the other hypothesis is the jungle hypothesis. And this is, like you said, the anthill in the jungle. You know, how do would we expect a, a human being walking throughout the jungle to even notice an anthill? Uh, and if they did, would the ants even be able to understand what they were seeing in uh, in their worldview because they are such a less sophisticated organism? Uh, I, I think that's a much stronger hypothesis. I actually argue in my book for a third hypothesis, uh, and this is what I have termed uh, the covert dark theory. And this theory is the idea that civilizations as rational uh, and um, uh, what I what I refer to as ambitious, uh, ambitious life is, is a common term in my book, uh, that a rational and ambitious civilization would take it upon themselves to surveil uh, potential competing civilizations, but not actually reveal their presence. And th this is something that is common in even human uh, activity, such as espionage and whatever. Um, this is a common activity that happens. And I think that that is a better explanation for why we have difficulty finding evidence, um, direct evidence of alien presence. And I also would like to add that the book also covers a number of other areas of potential direct evidence dealing with things like signals from space, uh, dealing with weird geometric structures found on other planets uh, in our solar system uh, that might, uh, if we had more of an open mind, uh, might be that actual evidence we've been looking for. I always talk about the analogy of you're driving, say you and I are driving on the highway and we see a turtle crossing the highway. We stop the car. We carry the turtle to safety. The turtle urinates itself because it's so scared. It goes back to its family and says, you won't believe what happened to me today. And the family won't believe it. Same thing with a fish. You and I go fishing and we just fish. We ca catch the fish and throw it back. That fish oh. goes back to the family. Is this the same as what happens to people who are abduct abducted sometimes? Yes, I, I believe that the experience is so unusual uh, that we we lack uh, the mental processes to explain it. Um, and when it happens to those people, it is like you suggested, is a fish being pulled out of water. Uh, and I think it's very, very important for people to understand that when we talk about the types of civilizations, we're talking about Everything in Hollywood, everything in the movies, most of the stuff in science fiction, we're talking about a type one or a type two interacting with us, with, with Earth. Um, everything from Independence Day, everything uh, from uh, Battle L.A. And, and all these other movies, um, you know, Contact even, these are relatively uh, similar civilizations to us. When we start to get into the threes, fours, well, and the five is very unique. When we start to get above in that scale, we're talking about civilizations that are millions of years old. So the mainstream record of our civilization is just a couple, uh, you know, 
10,000 or so. I, you know, Gobekli Tepe is, is 14,000 years old, and that's an anomaly, and we could get into out-of-place artifacts and, and, and ancient, civil, ancient human civilization. But the mainstream accepted uh, theory is that you know, we are about 10, maybe 12,000 years old uh, as a civilization. When we're talking about civilizations that are millions or billions of years old, uh, imagine what their capabilities would be. Um, they could be non-corporeal. Uh, they could be energy-based. They could be artificial intelligence. I, I mean, it, the, the the gap between what what people generally consider to be, quote, the alien phenomena and what it probably really is, is so vast that we have difficulty even imagining or speculating what, what we should expect to see, um, which is what I try to accomplish in the book, uh, The Type 5. This is just a fascinating conversation. We have to take a one and only break shortly. But when you think of the possibilities and the probabilities, silicon-based life forms, carbon-based life forms, look at Pumapunku, look at all these, as you said, these artifacts that are found out of place, uh, out of time and place and time, and you see the Antikythera mechanism in Greece, and you see so many other things, possibility of giants when you see the steps in many places around the world, you think this is not for us humans. Perhaps this was a giant civilization in the past, and we've heard about the Smithsonian perhaps sequestering a lot of this information. But I want to discuss this much more of the book. How can we find life? Why do we continue to say that we need to go to Mars when in fact we should be on the moon? We should have a permanent base on the moon, and you're a corporate attorney. You know that what is discovered becomes commercial. Take a look at the Wright brothers. Immediately after, what do we get? Commercial airplanes, war, you name it, everything. How come we don't have space platforms with hotels or a 24-7 camera pointing at Earth all day long with advertisers making it happen? I find that very hard to believe. And this is why I'm always wondering, did we really go to the moon? Or is this something there that they don't want us to find out about? But how can people buy the book, which is coming out in the next few days? People can place orders already, I believe. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, thank you, Mel. Um, so uh, if people are interested in the book, uh, you can email me at contact at suspectsky.com. Uh, and I'm going to be creating uh, what is called a sales site, S-E-L-Z. Uh, this will be a privately listed uh, website that will be uh, available for the pre-order price of $20. Uh, then beginning around March 1st, uh, I will have a public-facing sales site uh, for $25. Wonderful. And the, again, Suspect Sky is a YouTube channel, right? Uh, yes, th that is correct. Uh, it is a YouTube channel. Uh, we've been building a website as well uh, and the book. Um, so we, we have a nice, long, dedicated volunteer team. And uh, we've been around since around 2012. Um, so uh, funny enough, I joined uh, YouTube in 2012 and started creating full-length documentaries. And now we've moved more to a content model of uh, discussion podcast uh, stuff, uh, as well as the intermittently re uh, deployed uh, compilation or longer feature-length book. Or, I'm sorry, video. Yeah. And look at how much you've grown. You're almost 100,000 subscribers. Folks, a lot of great information. I'm, you know, this is why I love to do what I do. Our listeners recommended Ben Davidson from Suspicious Observers. Then I talked to Ben. He recommends his, his good friend, uh, Adrian. And here we are. 
but a lot more when we come back. Please don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to Veritas. I'm here with my special guest, Adrian D'Amico. A lot more when we return. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.